1: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. It's June 22,
2: 2000. It's a bright, sunny day, and spirits are high among the backpackers.
0: I distinctly remember working that day and the ladies that owned (laughs) the place where we were working just nailed us all day for talking and being lazy, um, because all doing all day was talking about going to the pub that night.
2: (laughs) That's Lauren Morris. She was working on the same zucchini farmers, Sarah Marnie, who we heard from in our last episode. The same Sarah who got the sack on that her first day picking zucchini, so might explain something, hey. Nonetheless, it's a tight group. They've got each other's backs. There's Lauren and Sarah, a Kiwi guy, Andy Lowe, and a 23-year-old from South Wales named Sarah Williams. Sarah was
0: heading off the next day to be bridesmaid at her brother's wedding, so she she invited us all to the pub to have a few beers before, before she head off.
2: And there were plenty of laughs. Sarah was popular among the residents. With a big smile and positive outlook, she'd arrived in town with two of her best friends, Kelly Simons and Natalie Morris.
3: You know, every, everyone went to Merthyr, all the youngsters. Met in Merthyr, especially over the weekends, like, you know, what the youngsters are like. And... Uh, that's where they met and become friends, yeah.
2: That's Ken Morris, Natalie's dad. He's talking about Merthyr Tydfil, a town about 40 minutes from the Welsh capital, Cardiff. He still lives in the small village Natalie was from. It's about 10 minutes from Merthyr, which is where the three young women would go on nights out.
3: They got talking. Natalie had always been a, for going to London to live, you know, uh, to, to get a job and to uh, live in London. But then between them, they decided uh, to go to Australia. And from then from then on, the could gap people to them was Australia. <laughs> they were thrilled to pieces,
2: yeah. Natalie was the youngest of Ken's six children, a daughter from his second marriage to Yvonne. In less than a year, the girls saved up the money. Natalie moved from a government job to working for a florist,
3: she went to uh, London to get her uh, passport. You know, she was on pins for for about for a fortnight till she got her passport, and uh, she was so relieved and so happy when she did get it. Then, and and leaving when we left at the airport in Eswatini, oh, she was full of it. You know, I can picture her now they all left at the same time? Oh, yes, yes. I, I, I picked them up, actually. I, I picked them up, and uh, my wife and I picked the other two on the, on the way to London. Yeah. We picked them up at their houses, you know, with their p- parents' tears uh, and that. Yeah. And then we took them up to uh, Ethel. Oh, my missus was broken-hearted. She didn't want her to go, but I thought, oh, yes, she she must go. That's what she wanted. That was
2: 1999. They headed for Sydney's eastern suburbs, got a place together near the beach and worked jobs in bars and cafes to pay the bills. Life was good, everything they'd hoped for. And it wasn't long before Ken and Yvonne were on a plane themselves, heading down under to see their daughter and her friends.
3: My wife couldn't wait to to go out to see her. So we went out to see her, and uh, we, we met her the first day. We, we arranged to meet her where she was working, in this cafe. And we went there, and uh, this couple from government were, were there. And uh, he came over to me then. On, on, the, on the way out, he'd seen me now talking to Natalie and uh, uh, embracing her sort of thing. And uh, he said, uh, what, what is Natalie to you? I said, uh, that's my daughter. Oh, and he was uh, turned to pieces on his wife. And he said, oh, she's lovely. We think the world of her.
2: By mid-2000, the girls decide it's time to see a little more of Australia and set off on their travels. They eventually make it to Childers to recharge the bank account by working on the farms. And they do that for a few weeks. They've been inseparable for almost a year. But with Sarah's brother's wedding coming up, it was coming to an end. She was heading home. Natalie and Kelly were making plans for more travel adventures.
0: We knew it was our last day working with Sarah. We are going to miss her. And um, yeah, they were just on our face all night,
2: all day. Lauren Morris was there with her older sister, Kate. They were 17 and 19 from Mandurah, just south of Perth in Western Australia. To avoid any confusion, they're not related to Natalie Morris.
0: I think we went into Centrelink and looked at the internet and found on the Centrelink internet about jobs that were available and yeah, we rang a a few um, banana plantations in Tully and they said, yep, if you're here you'll get a job, so that was good enough for us. We got on a bus I think it took us five days to get from Mandurah to Tully. (laughs) We broke down on the Nullar Ball on the the way over and um, yeah, we ended up in in I think in our first week there they had a massive flood and where we were staying we had there was a cyclone and where we were staying we had to wade through like wasting crocodile infested waters at 5am to get to work. We're like yeah wow.
2: On their travels they meet Andy Lowe and British backpacker Neil Griffith. Childers comes up in conversation and a few weeks later they're all in the same town to work on the farms. They'd been there for 10 days, long enough to get to know the Welsh girls and certainly long enough to feel obliged to give Sarah an Aussie send-off at the pub across the road.
4: When we'd get back to the hostel, it must have been around five-ish or six or something like that. And I remember I must have got home before Lauren knew and i ran up the stairs. You had to get your stuff for the shower really quickly. Then you'd have to run back down the stairs, back to the end of the hostel, and then line up for the shower. So if you were any more than fifth or sixth in line, you had to have a cold shower. So, you know, it was a priority for everybody there <laughs> to get to the shower quickly. Of course. And then, yeah, I think I moseyed over to the shops, got some... Um, groceries and i remember cooking dinner for the four of us that night um and then yeah we're just chatting so that the big lounge room was sort of the hub of um, the kitchen and the lounge room were big that's where everyone sort of hung out so everyone cooked uh dinner together all of the dutch guys were in there cooking and then everyone sort of went into the tv room and ate their dinner and chatted and stuff and then uh one of um the other girls, Sarah, was leaving to go back to England that night or the next day. So um, yeah, we decided that we'd go have a farewell drink with her over the road at the
0: pub.
2: So there was plenty. So there was there was a real good vibe about the place that night um, because you know, it was a chance to go and have a drink and have a laugh.
0: Yeah,
4: yeah, that was a great vibe. Everyone was young, um, you know, common interests, and yeah, we wanted to say goodbye to Sarah. She was a lovely girl. I think we'd um gone out to the beach with her the weekend before with Andy and Neil. Um, So, yeah, and I know Loz had spent a lot of time with her. She was a beautiful
0: girl, yeah. It was definitely a late night for us because, as I said, we're up at five, I'm sure. Um, Yeah, we headed headed back, passed out straight away. It was probably 11 or after 11 and... um, yeah, I remember passing out and what I was wearing to the pub that night because you know dorm rooms are a bit awkward. And probably about half an hour, forty minutes later, I had to get up and go to the toilet. So it was a bit of a rabbit warren up the top of the um, of the hostel, so you had to work your way down and then come down the stairs and walk all the way out to the back to get to the toilet. And on my way back up, I'd run into Neil. So we just didn't even say words, it was just like ha ha, pointed at each other, you had to go to the toilet too, (laughs) and then headed back to bed.
2: That exchange would later prove crucial in court. Records show that was somewhere between 11.50 and 10 past midnight. Both Lauren and Neil noticed a man sitting at a computer that was set up for internet use at the bottom of the stairs. It was Robert Long, the man who was just minutes away from setting fire to the building.
0: And probably it was only 10 or 15 minutes later that um, I could feel the building shaking and glass smashing, and I just thought it was vandals, you know, throwing rocks through the windows or something.
2: They're rooming with Katja Berensden from the Netherlands and Canadian Kendra Noodsland catcher testifies they were woken up minutes after she went to bed at 12.20am.
0: One of the girls in our room old fire and had got up and turned the light on and as she turned the light on you could see the smoke like oozing through the top of the It was really old school um, uh, doors with the vents up the top and I could see that really thick black smoke coming through the bottom and up the top. I was on the top bunk and yeah I've it was like shit it's a fire and the lights went out as soon as we turned them on and um, I jumped down and you could feel the fire was directly underneath us the floorboards were roasting hot
4: the two girls went out and we were left in there by ourselves Loz must have jumped off the bunk and I'm chronic asthmatic so I was breathing that smoke in a the and then I've woken up and collapsed on the ground And I remember her screaming, trying to find me, and it was so dark. And she's like, Kate, get up, Kate, get up, Kate, get up. And I was just like, in my mind, thinking, I wish she'd be quiet, I'm going to sleep. And I just wanted to just lie on the ground and go to sleep. And then she must have found my hands. She just yanked me and pulled me out
0: into the corridor. And I just grabbed her and, all I could think in my head was stop, stop drop, roll, stop, drop, roll, it's fire, you know, stop, drop and roll. And then I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm not on fire. I'll just, yeah, keep low. And just felt my way along the wall. I had my sister in my hand and it was literally a right-hand turn, left-hand turn. We were on the, on the fire escape out the back.
4: Yeah, the noise, it was like fireworks exploding and things exploding people were just screaming. I'm pretty sure somebody ran over us. It was just just terrible. And But yeah, Loz just knew what to do. She got down low. She pulled me along the ground. I remember the ground being really hot. And then she just used her hand to guide us um, along the corridor and then along another corridor and out the back. And yeah, I just can't believe that we made it out. It was like this, the worst... Toxic, disgusting smoke um, in our lungs, and yeah, just the horror of the noises and it was really scary. I suppose um, it's sort of a like a choking feeling, like you couldn't, you just couldn't escape it. It was everywhere. It was just, and it wasn't like you know, it wasn't like a a you know, like if you go and have you go to somebody's backyard and you have a fire. It wasn't that sort of fire. It was a your disgusting burning plastic toxic fire smell coming in us yeah we've always been extremely close but you know <laughs> she's just my number one even <laughs> i have we're both married happily married but you know we'll grow old together and be in the nursing home together and you know just be so thankful that we have each other if i didn't have her i wouldn't be here i definitely she wouldn't i wouldn't be here she saved me I just had so much of that smoke in my lungs already by the time I woke up that I was probably lucky to have woken up, I'd say. I was very drowsy when I woke up. She's, yeah, she saved my life. Yeah.
2: There was another moment just two days earlier that the sisters have often reflected on, even more so as the years have gone by since the fire.
0: Yeah, I'll never forget, Kate the big sister kind of not bullied me but made me <laughs> go and like be a little bit assertive and say to the, we got some prices from the caravan park and, and um, yeah, we said to their reception if, if you don't put us in a better room we're going to head up to the caravan park because we're not getting sleep, we're working hard you know, and it wasn't a good environment to be in basically, it wasn't a chill out zone at all, our room and yeah, so I'm pretty sure it was that day. They said, "Oh, look, we can put you in uh, room 13," and and yeah, we moved. And it just blows my mind every day that you know, it's just so many. Yeah, it's just wow. Yeah,
2: you were you were originally in the room where every single person sleeping in there lost their life.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. That's pretty yeah. um. That must make you really reflect.
0: A hundred percent. I'm just, yeah, somebody was definitely looking after us. Yeah, I still can't believe that. You know, me and Kate are quite um, resilient. We've, you know, done it tough. You know, that kind of situation is not something that we would um, usually arc up about. But, yeah, this one time... We put our foot down and said, you know what, if we're, yeah, we want what we want, if we're paying money, we deserve to have a good night's sleep. And, um, yeah, who would have thought thought that every person in that room passed away? We
4: were just so extremely lucky. Well, you know, how does that even happen that two nights before we were in that room? It's just so hard to process that. It could have been us and, um, yeah, just... Yeah, just to you know, I don't know how, you know, it's like a sliding doors moment, isn't it? You know, like just to still be here when it could have, could have been us, yeah.
2: Two of the people who were in that room seven that night were Sarah Williams and Natalie Morris. Kelly Simons was in room 11. How she came to be rescued that night by her roommate Keith O'Brien is a remarkable story in itself that will be told later in this series.
3: it was early in the morning, my wife was uh, upstairs and I took the phone call downstairs and uh, of course my wife could tell by the way I was answering uh, and she came down and she, she was practically screaming then she knew, she knew and uh, oh I couldn't I couldn't handle it at all Natalie was was her life but they said they said but your, your daughter they, they think your daughter uh, is still alive like she's in hospital like I come back in and by then lots of our friends had come to the house you know and uh, Sarah's mother phoned and you know about the news. She just said the news as well, and uh, she said, "Ken, and and thinking the worst, she said, I think that I think we've lost him.'" And I said, "Oh, you hope to God not." And uh, she couldn't speak to uh, Yvonne because Yvonne was sort of well, still breaking out into hysteria on uh, on the, the settee, and all the friends around her, you know, uh, supporting her and trying to comfort her. And uh, not long after we got a foreign call in there, uh, they, they, hadn't,
2: uh, they hadn't got a good the fire. A year later, Ken set up a travel bursary in Natalie's honour at the local high school where the girls were educated. As a young man, he dreamed of moving to Australia himself, but never took the plunge. It's why he was so supportive of Natalie's travel adventures. It's why he wanted to ensure others weren't deterred by what happened to his own daughter in Childers. But it did little to mend the pain in his heart or for his wife, Yvonne, who passed away in 2008.
3: was nothing I can do about it. I can't even stand... I can't even sit in front of him and tell him, you know, what I think of him and what he's done to... Me and my family, especially to my wife, for her, were uh, in an early grave, eight years after Natalie, because she never, never, never got over it.
2: It is just so incredibly sad.
3: I think about my daughter all the time, and my wife, because that, 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 that's all part of it. I pray for her every day. I don't go up the cemetery as much as I used to now because uh, they wouldn't want me to be spending like I was go- going up there and standing in the rain and the snow. And uh, I've got beyond that, gone beyond that now, as I say, getting on with my life. So I just go up. Uh, about once a week, once a fortnight, put flowers on, see my little bit. So for 10 years, it, uh, you went to her grave site every day. Oh, yes, yes. No matter what the weather? Yes. No, didn't, didn't stop me at all. It was my duty. And I wanted to be up there, you know, setting up balloons and that. I was doing that, going to a, Nice areas up on the beacons, what we call the beacons, you know, in the mountains and uh, letting off balloons and that. Oh, mate, that's so sad. But it's uh, settled settled down more now in the last uh, nine years, I'd say. Getting, Getting on, getting on with things.
2: What an incredibly humbling experience to spend time talking with Ken. Thank you for opening up and sharing your story with me and the listeners. Again, on on behalf of myself, and, and I've no doubt every listener tuning into this podcast, I wish Ken and his family and everyone so tragically impacted by the Childers Hostel fire every possible peace and happiness moving forward. Now, to end this episode, a story which I stumbled across while I was talking to Kate and Lauren Morris, and it relates to award-winning country singer Darren Coggan. He'd been touring North Queensland in June 2000 and was passing through Childers a week after the fire.
5: I wanted to stop and, and pay my respects, um, and I wasn't prepared for the, the sort of the, uh, the wave of emotion and, and how deeply saddened I would be uh, standing there in front of the palace there reading all of the, you know, the messages of love and the prayers and the cards and the flags and, and flowers that, that lined the palace, um, what, what was left of it there on the, on the footpath. So I stood there for a long time and I remember the, the, the gravity of the event was really, played really heavily on my mind and I was a similar age to those young people who so tragically lost their lives. And it just had a huge impact on me. I remember leaving Childers that afternoon and and that day just stayed with me for a long, long time and, and just processing, I, I mean, I still to this day can't process that tragedy and the, and the horror of that night and and also the horror it must have been for all of their families to receive a lot of, you know, obviously they come from all over the world, a lot of those young people, and to receive that phone call, their parents or their parents. Brothers and sisters, their loved ones back home. I, I, I don't know how. I don't. I can't imagine that phone call.
2: Straight away, Darren and his songwriting partner Ken Macbeth wrote the tune "Spirit of the Free," which ended up featuring on his 2002 album "Balancing Act."
5: Yeah, the song was born out of that that day that I, I went through children's and and I, you know, I wanted it to make to be a song that paid huge respect to the you know to the significance of. Of the event, obviously, but also wanted it to acknowledge the the town of Childers and and how incredible that community is. I've never lived there or anything like that, but a a beautiful community like that to take in um, young people who are uh, having an adventure and and looking for employment and somewhere to stay and and food. Uh, I think those young people get woven into the fabric of that community, and and I think Childers is a superb example of. Of those rural communities around Australia that do that for so many young people that are that are travelling, yeah. uh, so it was a salute to Childers and and obviously those people that lost their lives, and also wanted to the song to be in a way a, a positive message about young people and you know young people going out and living their lives to the fullest, which those young people were doing, and and I think that's the I think that's the greatest way that we can honour those young people who lost their lives, is to live our own lives to the fullest, you know, really embrace every single day that, that they didn't get to do that. So that's, that's kind of where the song came from, yeah.
2: It wasn't long after that that Kate and Lauren's mother, Jan, is in the crowd for a Casey Chambers concert in Western Australia. She gets there early enough to see the support act, Darren Coggan. Before he plays Spirit of the Free, he tells the story of how the lyrics came to be.
4: And then Mum, at the end of the show, said, I need to meet this guy because my two daughters were in the fire. And so Mum met him and had a talk, and then so he invited me to go back to the show the next night. Um, At this stage, I was still really nervous about talking about it. But yeah, he dedicated the song to me in front of the whole um, arena or wherever it was, and yeah, it was a pretty
5: special moment. It was a lovely, a lovely experience to to have someone with a with a direct connection to to that, and to get there. You know, not that you're seeking anyone's approval, but to get you know to get such a warm and positive response from them was was really lovely.
2: Darren has been kind enough to allow his song "Spirit of the Free" to be used is the soundtrack for this podcast. We're in my lounge right now. I'm not sure, <laughs> not sure that the acoustics are going to be amazing. sure it'll be great. i um, move this microphone a little bit closer. Let's give it up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Spirit of the Free.
1: Ride that ship and sail out across the ocean. Spread your wings and fly to southern skies. Turn a key and ride that endless highway. For a home is where the heart will choose to be. You can't. in the mail She's found some friends she knew from school They're on their way They're so glad to leave old England behind and those gloomy castles left standing in the rain This is something they've been wanting to do They've been dreaming it for Upon their backs They'll pick fruit or maybe pack Can't wait to taste the sun The surf and the beer Ride that ship And sail out across the ocean Spread your wings And fly to southern skies Taken under wing, they bring a restless energy that earns a welcome smile. They're colorful voices, they ring up and down the streets. They're the lifeblood of this town. But sirens chew the air around the princess sitting there. Flames from her palace burn all night So ride that ship And sail out across the ocean Spread your wings And fly in higher skies Turn a key And ride that endless highway For a home Ride that ship sail out across the ocean, spread your wings and fly in high skies. Turn a key and ride that endless highway. For a home is where the heart will choose to be. You can't ever tame the spirit of the free. Yes, a home is where the heart will.
2: What a voice, hey? I hope you enjoyed that special version of Spirit of the Free, live from my lounge room. This podcast was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran, with support from the Bundaberg Regional Council. Thank you to the many lovely people who have shared their stories, especially people like the ultimate gentleman, Ken Morris, who you heard from in this episode. If you can, please make sure you take the time to stop over in Childers to visit the memorial to those who lost their lives in the Palace Hostel fire in June 2000. Make sure you hit subscribe and tell your family and friends about the podcast. And remember, you can't ever tame the spirit of the free.
5: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.